0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled A Lenten Letter to President George W. Bush for week number six in Lent, Liturgy of the Passion, for Sunday, April 9th, 2006, Palm Sunday. Dear President Bush, As a fellow Christian, I hope you will take a few minutes to contemplate one of the scriptures from the lectionary for this Palm Sunday. In Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, the Apostle Paul asks us to imitate the attitude that was exemplified in the life and death of Christ our Lord. He then quotes what many scholars believe is one of the earliest hymns that Christians sang to worship Jesus. It goes as follows. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man As you consider this ancient hymn, I hope you will join Christians around the world who since the fourth century have observed the 40 days of Lent as a period of repentance, self-examination, acts of mercy, and self-denial. Mr. President, as a citizen, I find myself deeply discouraged about the course of our country under your administration. I can't claim any expertise in politics, statecraft, or international diplomacy. But I read, I talk with my neighbors, I watch the news, and I've traveled in 40 countries. I've come to resonate with a friend who lamented that he has never felt more embarrassed about his country. I feel increasingly alienated from and by our political process, frustrated by our rancorous polarizations and helpless to know how to make a positive contribution. As a Christian, I'm appalled. Your job as president, who has identified himself as a Christian, is doubly difficult. First, since we enjoy a constitution that separates church and state, you represent all of our citizens, whether Muslim, Hindu, Atheist, or the 78% of the white evangelicals who voted for you in 2004. Second, and even more challenging for you as a believer, Robert Kaplan suggests in his book Warrior Politics that presidential leadership demands what he calls a pagan ethos. Kaplan insists that leaders must separate personal virtue and public policy, Like Machiavelli, he says, the warrior politician must know how to do bad in order to accomplish good. Promote the necessary and not the nice. Sanction deceit to avoid or conduct war. Refuse intervention when no national interest is at stake. Or kill many people in order to avoid killing even more people. The problem here, though, is that the more you gain as such a politician, the more you lose your soul as a Christian. And in the words of Jesus, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So, your responsibilities as a president who identifies himself as a Christian are complex, to say the least. Practically speaking, it's impossible to separate your Christian identity from your presidential responsibilities the gospel makes claims on us that have inherently political implications and on the other hand public policies often have moral consequences both good and bad in his book god's politics why the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it to take one example jim wallace asks how did the faith of jesus come to be known as pro-rich pro-war and pro-American. Or why, he asks, do conservative Christians lament 4,000 abortions a day but devote comparatively less attention to 30,000 infant deaths a day due to preventable disease? Or to take another example, why have we intervened in Iraq and the former Yugoslavia but not in Rwanda or Darfur? So even if you wanted to partition your Christian identity from your presidential policies, your decisions have moral consequences. Even though you must represent the interests of all American citizens, you cannot and should not compartmentalize your personal faith in public service. I think your identity as a Christian who follows the Prince of Peace can and should redound to the good of all peoples in every nation and not merely to American self-interest or to Christians. Having said that, to me, there is a stark contrast between Paul's hymn that he asks us to imitate Christ's humility and the policies, tenor, and actions of your administration. In particular, I believe that your administration has done the following things isolated and alienated us from our international friends by our unilateralism, enraged our global enemies, misunderstood their mindset and strengthened their resolve, militarized international diplomacy, suggesting that brutal violence can defeat an enemy or democratize a country, undermined the credibility of our commitment to human rights, rule of law, and democracy, destabilized the greater Middle East region and created a recruiting bonanza for terrorists, confirmed the jihadist view of history that America wants to occupy, control, or destroy their countries, initiated war in Iraq under successive dubious rationales, Demonstrated staggering failures and gross negligence in mismanaging the Iraq War. Provoked other nations to follow our example of threatening preemptive war. Believed dangerous illusions about American exceptionalism. Ignored, harassed, and caricatured or dismissed critics as unpatriotic. Degraded public discourse by chronic dissimulation, spent two hundred and fifty billion dollars on the Iraq war with no end in sight that could have been spent on education, health care, or poverty, and finally killed over 30,000 people in Iraq, mainly innocent civilians. Of course, intelligent policy analysts, political advisors, patriotic citizens, and conscientious Christians, all people of goodwill, debate these matters. But please consider two things. First, that my litany characterizes the appearance of your presidency, even if you believe that it misrepresents the realities. Whatever the reasons, and however justified or not, your lowest ever job approval ratings indicate that a large majority of Americans are deeply disappointed with your presidency. Second, an increasing number of your own conservative advocates have publicly expressed grave doubts about your administration policies and also your performance, including Andrew Bacevich, Bruce Bartlett, William F. Buckley, Francis Fukuyama, Peggy Noonan, Andrew Sullivan, and George Will. I hope you will listen to your conservative friends, if not to your liberal critics. This Palm Sunday, Christians worship a king who entered Jerusalem, quote, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, end quote. Matthew 21, verse 5. As a Texan, I wonder if this image of Jesus might capture your imagination. I interpret this triumphal entry of Jesus on a lowly donkey instead of on a powerful steed as political parody or irony, a parabolic action about how his kingdom subverts conventional understandings about political power and personal humility. As you lay your head on your pillow tonight, alone with yourself and alone before God, I invite you as our president and as a fellow Christian to join us in Lenten's self-reflection that in Paul's letter to the Philippians calls us to imitate Jesus in his subversive humility. Thank you. Daniel B. Clendenin For books this week, I review a book called The Next Attack, The Failure of the War on Terror and a Strategy for Getting it Right by Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon New York Times Books, 2005, 330 pages In their bestseller, The Age of Sacred Terror, Radical Islam's War Against America, published in the year 2002, a widely hailed book that won the Arthur Ross Book Prize given by the Council on Foreign Relations, Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon warned about the threat of terrorism to the United States, a threat which they insisted we did not understand and that we failed to counter. Then came the September 11 attacks, which made them prophets. In this, their new book, The Next Attack, The authors warn that more than four years later we still persist in misunderstanding our adversary and that we face grievous consequences unless we change our thinking, our strategies, and our policies. About halfway through their new book, the authors summarize, it is simply no longer possible to maintain that the United States is winning the war on terror. Despite some limited successes, and the authors are careful to acknowledge these successes, we've failed at almost every critical juncture. First, in a failure of vision, we have linked terrorism to rogue states, or almost exclusively to al-Qaeda. Instead of understanding the dynamic of numerous independent non-state actors, actors that function alone. Terrorists, in this idea, is more like a deadly mold, to quote one analyst, and not like a deadly snake that the administration claims it will behead. In a failure of strategy, we have militarized the problem and what we think is the solution, thinking that sheer force can annihilate the enemy. In their view, we have already lost the even more important war of Muslim public opinion. Third, the Iraq war has been a monumental disaster in the opinion of the two authors. We have played right into the hands of the jihadists. Confirm their view of world history, that infidels from the west want to occupy and control their land, created a recruiting bonanza for terrorists around the world, and with Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, we have caused Muslims to view us not only as infidels, but as hypocrites who do not honor human rights, rule of law, or democracy. Fourth, the Internet revolution has fueled jihadist rage and sense of epic heroism, much like television brought the Vietnam War into the living rooms of Americans. The video of the beheading of Nicholas Berg, to mention one gruesome example, was downloaded at least 15 million times. Technical know-how from bomb-making on the Internet makes terrorist training camps almost obsolete. And finally, Benjamin and Simon point to trends in American culture at large that go far beyond any single administration. In particular, they point to conservative Protestants who have supported Bush in mass, supported Israel uncritically to the detriment of Palestinians, and who have made despicable and inexcusably disparaging remarks about Islam. They mention James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, Franklin Graham, Pat Roberson, Charles Coulson, and others. All of this has reinforced the radical jihadist stereotypes of America and their view of global history that pagan infidels of the West want to destroy them. The Madrid bombings on March 11, 2004, in which rogue jihadists detonated 10 bombs simultaneously show just how vulnerable we have made ourselves with these six failures. Why have we not been attacked since September 11th? The authors give credit where it is due but go on to argue that terrorists have no need to attack hard difficult targets in America when they have a field day in Iraq in limitless soft targets in places like Madrid, London, Bali, and Chechnya. But, more ominous still, they believe that they will strike here in America again, with their trademarks of patience and perfectionism, which makes their long section in the book on our many failures in homeland security very sobering reading. Our preoccupation with a military offensive has shorted the need for preemptive defense. Let us pray that Benjamin and Simon are wrong, but they were right in their first book, so let us pray that people listen to them even more carefully this time around. Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon, the next attack, the failure of the war on terror and a strategy for getting it right. For film this week, I review the movie Nine Lives from the year 2005. I was eager to like this experimental film written and directed by Rodrigo Gassara, Garcia, the son of the Colombian novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but in the end I was disappointed. Garcia tells the stories of nine women each one as a separate and independent 10-12 to minute snapshot. Except for pain and dysfunctions of all sorts that relate directly to the men in their lives, the nine stories are not related. We encounter teenage and elderly women, blue-collar and professionals, black, Hispanic, and white. Diana, for example, is divorced from her husband, but they should have stayed together. Sonia, on the other hand, is badly married and should divorce, but has not. Holly confronts her abusive stepfather and maybe commits suicide. Samantha referees between her distant parents. Ruth considers an affair, Camille confronts breast surgery, and as an inmate, Sandra is separated from her daughter. The artistic signature of this film is that Garcia shoots each of the nine vignettes in a single uninterrupted 10 to 12 minute shot using a handheld camera, and that the crises these women face all remain unsolved. Nine Lives, written and directed by Rodrigo Garcia. And finally for this week, in poetry, for Palm Sunday, we've posted a poem called The Donkey by G.K. Chesterton, who lived from 1874 to 1936. In this poem, Chesterton captures Palm Sunday from the perspective of the donkey that Jesus rode. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born with monstrous head and sickening cry in ears like errant wings the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things the tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will Starve, scourge deride me I am dumb I keep my secret still fools for I also had my hour, One far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears, In palms before my feet. The Donkey by G. K. Chesterton Thank you for joining JourneyWithJesus.net for Palm Sunday, April 9, 2006. And please join us every Sunday for an essay, book review, film, and poetry. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.